Welcome. You are listening to the Upper Room Podcast. For more information or to donate to this ministry, visit URFellowship.com. How you doing? All right. My name is Chris. If we haven't met each other yet, <clears throat> today we're going to begin a new series. And this series is going to be called The Sex Talk. So you ready for The Sex Talk, everybody? All right. So we are going to explore <clears throat> what it means to think about identity, sexuality, gender when it comes to Jesus. And if you didn't know, we are also doing an, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, an adult Sunday school class. And the junior high is working through these same topics. So I have been affectionately calling this the summer of sex here at the upper room. <laughs> I, I like it. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about those words, those words, identity, sexuality, gender, if you're like me, um, I've been in some moments where there's just been some kind of some tension in the room. Right? I don't know if you've been to some kind of family dinner, or you're talking to a friend, and all of a sudden, the two of you realize you're kind of on different pages with some of these things, and there's this tension. And my hope is that as we talk about these things, sexuality, let's just, let's just talk about it. Let's talk about it in a spirit of love and grace. And, um, you know, we've all had to think through this. We've all had to process what it means to be sexual beings, to be gendered beings. And above all, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, we want to know what he thinks. As Christians, the, the question has to be, who is forming our thoughts on these things? Because every time you have an opinion or a belief about identity, sexuality, gender, you got that from somewhere. You see, we're, we're being shaped by someone or something. So again, when it comes to identity, sexuality, and gender, the question is, who's forming it? Leslie Newbegin, the late British missionary theologian, says it this way. If the biblical story is not the one that really controls our thinking, then inevitably we shall be swept into the story that the world tells about itself. If the biblical story does not control our thinking, then we'll be swept into the story the world tells about itself. So the first goal of this series is to see what Jesus thinks about these topics and let that form us. And uh, like I'm interested in what Jesus thinks about sexuality. And I would assume you, most of you are too. We as a church, we want him to shape our minds and our hearts and our lives. I don't want to be swept into some story that the world's telling us about itself. I want to be swept into the story that Jesus is telling us. That's the first goal. The second goal has to do with clarity. It must be, at times, very frustrating to be someone in maybe the LGBTQ plus community and try to visit and attend churches. Because I, I think it would be difficult at times to get to, okay, so what do you actually believe? Recently, Alyssa Garrison, writing for Flair, spoke about her journey with an evangelical church that was not clear about their beliefs. And as a member of the church community, she wanted to know where the church stood, but the church kind of remained vague in its teachings on sexuality. And so she was, she was a part of the church for a number of years before she found out that they held a traditional-slash-biblical understanding of marriage. And it didn't come out in a series like this. It came out in an offhand comment from a guest speaker. And she was frustrated with how the church had hid the teaching under kind of a vague love. And so she writes this. She says, looking back over a year later, my issue is not with the church and religion in general, nor with some higher power. My issue is with the lack of transparency. 
the policies that are only revealed behind closed doors and strategically vague statements. And I agree with her, right? My hope is at the upper room, we can be a place where we can talk openly about Jesus and identity and sexuality and gender in a loving, graceful way. I want our church to be transparent about where we stand. And I don't want any kind of bait and switch thing. Also, I want to say, if you weren't here last week, or if you didn't get a chance to listen to the sermon online, uh, I would highly encourage you to do that. I talked very specifically about how, as a church, we approach cultural issues. I talked about how our goal is not to make a point, but to make a difference. So this series is not about picking on a group of people or making a point at the expense of anybody. Our goal is the same goal Jesus had, abundant life, making an actual difference in the quality and fullness of for his for, for life for as many people as we can. So listen to that if you haven't. Something else I want to say. <clears throat> um, you know, I got the microphone up here, and you're listening. That's not much of a conversation. That's not fair. So I want to give you the opportunity to ask questions if you have them. So if you think of a question at any point, you can actually text in your question to, and we got the number up here, yeah, 330-892-8882. There's no caller ID attached to that. So all your questions are anonymous. If we get some questions, at the end of the series, I'll, I'll just do a talk where I just answer questions. So if you have a question, perfect. Send it to 330-892-8882, and we'll do the best that we can with that. Okay? So today, we just got to lay some foundation. Okay? Today, I'm going to maybe talk a little bit longer than usual. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, there's a lot to lay out, because I think that we have to understand and have some agreement about what's going on in the world and what's going on with humanity, and with our culture specifically. And so to do that, grab your Bibles, go all the way to page 1, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So pause there. We've already gone too far. Okay, so this very short sentence contains some huge ideas very quickly. And if if you've heard it a lot of times, you kind of may miss these. So we're going to look at it a little bit phrase by phrase. All right, according to theologians, what is meant in Genesis 1, when it says in the beginning, is that there was something before there was space and time. And that something was God. God exists outside of time. And that concept is kind of hard for us to wrap our brains around. Because many of the thoughts you have had throughout your entire life are based on time. Our language is time-based. Right? Our verbs are almost all time-dependent. I am running, I was running, I will be running, I'm done running. But God is not restrained by time though the way that we are. So in the beginning, God, next phrase, in the beginning, God created. So God created. So before everything else existed, God is not just sitting there passively doing nothing, disinterested. No, he's crafting, he's making. He's an artist. And he's creating really impressively because the theological term is that he's creating ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. Ex nihilo. This speaks to the unbelievable creativity and power and wealth of God. He never runs out of creative fuel or resources. What's next? In the beginning, God created the heavens. Now, this one's easy to blow by, but something huge is happening here. When the Bible speaks of the heavens, plural... What we know is the people who wrote this do not understand the expanse of the universe. They do not have telescopes. They do not have space shuttles. They have not seen what we've seen. And yet they do a phenomenal job describing that there's a universe out there. 
There isn't just the heaven that we see, but there must be heavens beyond that. God created the heavens, the billions of stars, the expanse of the universe, all the planets, and into that expanse, God creates this one tiny little planet that we call Earth. In a not very big, not very impressive solar system that spins around a not very big, not very impressive star in a galaxy that's not very big and not all that impressive as far as galaxies are concerned. And on this tiny little planet, out of the billions of planets that were made, he decides to put his crown jewel creation, humanity. Now this matters to us in huge ways that God created the heavens and the earth because all of us long to believe that we were made for something. We long to believe that we exist for some purpose. We're, we're obsessed with questions of, why am I here? What, what do I exist for? Am I, am I wasting my life? Is this job satisfying? Is this what I was made for? Like, I don't know if you saw that movie uh, Creed that came out a few years ago. It was okay. But there's a line in the movie where Adonis Johnson, the lead protagonist in the movie, he's struggling, and he looks at Rocky, who's his trainer, and he says, I just want to prove I'm not a mistake. And Genesis 1 is answering all those questions. No, you're not a mistake. You're not here on accident. You were absolutely made for something. You have purpose. Nothing about your existence is an accident. Now we're going to skip down to the bookends of this chapter. Skip down to verse 26. Here we go, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Okay, so if you go back and you read through Genesis 1, the rhythm of Genesis 1 over and over again is God made it, he saw it, said it was good. That's the rhythm. God made it, saw it, said it was good. Till verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image. All of a sudden, the Trinity breaks out in conversation with itself. Something changes. So we're not just going to make it. We're going to talk about it. We're thinking about it. What are we going to make here? And here's why. Because there's something different about humanity. It's his masterpiece. It's his pinnacle of creation. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. So twice it says that phrase, right? also says in verse 26. God said, let us make mankind in our image. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Repetition in the Bible means, pay attention to this. The end of verse 27 says, male and female, he created them. So not just male in God's image, not just female in God's image. No, both male and female are created in the image of God. Skip down to verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. The whole rhythm changes. He says, I'm going to make humanity different, special, in my image. And when he's done with humanity, he says something that he's never said before in the rest of the creative process. He looks back and he goes, very good. There's something different and unique and specific about humanity. And we get a piece of our answer to the question, why are we here? What are we made for? It's not just that we were made by God, but that we were made by God, to image God. To image God. Remember that phrase came up three different times. We were made in the image of God. 
We are made to image God. What's that mean? Think about, think about an artist who paints a portrait. Think about a sculptor who sculpts a statue. What's the purpose of that image? It is to show off to other people, this is what this person looks like. That's what it means to image something. So when you make a portrait, when you sculpt a sculpture, you're saying to the world, this is what this person looks like. And God said when he made humanity, part of our purpose was to image him. That we were designed to be living, breathing statues, artwork, that shows the rest of the creation, this is what God looks like. This is what he is like. We were made to image God in creation. Okay. You with me on that idea? Okay. If you're with me, then that immediately rules out some, rules some things out. If that's true, that we were made by God to image God, then that rules some things out. Let me give you some examples. If that's true, that it means we, were, we do, if that's true, it means we do not exist for work. In every way that you live your life, believing that career comes first and your, your work will satisfy you, you will never be fully satisfied or fulfilled. And in the long run, you will hurt people around you. If that's true, that we were made by God in his image, then it means that we do not exist for other people's approval. And if you believe that what other people think about you is ultimate, that that's what matters most, then your life will be consumed with anxiety. And you're constantly worrying about what other people are thinking. Here's another one. If we were made by God to image God, then that means we were not made for ourselves. It means we're not the point. And the more you believe that you are the point, the more you will constantly be frustrated. Because the world's just not going to lay down and comply. Like here's an illustration. If I were to come over to your house, like you invited me over, I get there. Just as soon as I get there, I like kick off my muddy shoes and I plop down on a couch like in the best spot. And I just start like right away, start critiquing. Hey, you know what? I don't like where this coffee table is. You move it a little closer, would you? What? Why'd you put the TV on that wall? That's wrong. What? Why'd you choose this paint color? Yuck. Like at some point, you're going to turn to me and go, bro, it's not for you. What are you doing? It's ours. It's not yours. It's mine. And if you walk through life believing that this world exists for you, you're going to be frustrated. One more. If it's true you were made by God to image God, then it means that we were not made to live as a sex and romance or ultimate. Go to Romans 1, Romans chapter 1, verse 21. Romans is a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. It was a church of believers who lived in a culture that was not very keen on the idea that there was one God who had created us all. And so he's writing them and he's describing what's gone wrong with humanity. Here's what he says, picking up in verse 21. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. That's exactly what we're talking about. They exchanged, they traded in God for images of created things. They traded in God for created things. Things like work and romance and ourselves. They traded him in. 
Therefore, God delivered them over to the desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. So, all right, so two times Paul says they, they exchanged. They traded in God for images and for created things. Second time, verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creator rather than the, the creature rather than the creator. Two times Paul reiterates, here's what has happened. A trade has been made. The God who made us for himself to image him to the world, we have traded him in, our creator, we've traded him in and exchanged him instead for created things, for things that he made. And this is happening all the time around you in your life. Let me give you some examples. If you know any controlling people, you know someone who has traded in the beauty of living in submission to God for a belief that the world would be better if they had control. If you had an angry dad growing up, you had a dad who had exchanged the reality that all of us as humans live and exist for God to worship God, and he traded that in for the belief that, no, other people around me exist to respect me, to treat me as king, and I'll rule with an iron fist until I get what I want. If you know a cute little cuddly toddler going through the terrible threes, you know a little cute cuddly toddler who's just on the brink of practicing and experimenting with what it's like to exchange the glory of God for the glory of themselves. And every temper tantrum is a proclamation, I exist for me. I deserve it all. And I will throw myself down and scream in a crowded restaurant if you disagree. At all times and all, all places around us, this is what's happening. We've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for created things. And look at the result. Verse 24. Therefore God delivered them over, to, in, their, over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity. Skip down to verse 26. For this reason God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. So two times Paul says, here's what's happening in humanity. And two times he says, now here's the end result. Here's my question. Why is the first effect that Paul mentions, both times Paul goes straight to sexual sin? Why? <clears throat> was Paul just obsessed with sexual sin? Is that what's happening here? No, Paul's not obsessed with sexual sin. Something insightful is happening here. Remember what we said in Genesis 1. What was the crown jewel of creation? Humanity. So in this pattern of exchanging God for created things, you want to know what the easiest thing to trade for God is? People and sex. Desire and romantic lust for people. It's one of the easiest things to exchange for God. Not just in our culture, but in all cultures throughout history. <clears throat> and maybe you think, maybe you're thinking right now, ah, I don't know about that. I think Paul's overstating his case a little bit. Like, that's not what's happening there. Like, we just have appetites. Okay. If he was right... I'll tell you what I would expect to find in a culture where sex was no longer just sex and romance was no longer just romance, but instead we had elevated those things to a godlike status where we, we believe that, that they could give us meaning and purpose. I'll tell you what you might find in a hypothetical culture like that. I'd expect in a culture like that, I'd expect you to find a large economic revenue based on sex and gender. Like maybe something like a 
$3 billion online dating industry and roughly a $51 billion wedding industry. In a culture where the number one largest selling sector of book sales would be romance novels by more than double the next closest category. And maybe a porn industry with income estimates around $12 billion, an income that rivals the incomes of ABC, CBS, and NBC combined. This is just a hypothetical culture. I'm trying to imagine a culture where they had exchanged God for romance and sex. In a culture like that, I would expect that you would find a certain overwhelming at times, just crushing pressure to get married. And I would expect that that crushing pressure would be reiterated in movies all the time. I would expect you would have movies with lines that said things like, you complete me. Or we would have movies, say like The the Notebook. Okay, so I'm going to throw the movie The Notebook under the bus. That's what I'm going to do. Now, if if you're a husband and your wife is sitting next to you, feel free to just kind of hold her back from rushing the stage and punching me in the face. Okay? So the notebook, I don't love this movie. The story is Noah and Allie, by the way, spoiler alert on a 17-year-old movie that you don't need to see anyway, so it doesn't matter, but Noah and Allie, they love each other. They spend this amazing summer together, but they're forced to separate. Noah and Allie, Noah tries to reach Allie, with love letters that she never receives. And they're separated by war. But 14 years later, Allie finds Noah again. And even though she's engaged to a guy, by the way, he's a good guy. Remember the movie? He's like a decent chap. He's great, but her lover's back in town. And she and her lover, Noah, spend two amazing days together. Two. Uno, dos days. She's engaged to a great guy, but she's swept off her feet with these romantic feelings, and she breaks an engagement with a guy because of this romantic surge of emotion, because we have been enchanted by the lie that sex and romance are ultimate. So we like dumb movies like this. I'm sorry, I didn't have to say that last part. Anyway, in this hypothetical culture, I would expect a lot of songs on the radio would talk about romance, like everyone every channel, every genre. I'd expect every genre to have a lot of love songs. I'd expect songs to have lyrics like, you should know, everywhere I go, always on my mind, in my heart, in my soul, baby, you're the meaning in my life. We have taken these good gifts of sex and romance and we have elevated them to ultimate things. There's a guy named Danny Aiken. He's a president of a seminary, and he wrote a book called God on Sex. And one of the really powerful illustrations he used was there's this anthropologist, and he's working with this group of people called the Hopi people. And they're kind of this detached people group, living in the wild. He's meeting with them. He's building with them, kind of learning their language, learning their culture. And after a while, he looks at one of the village leaders, and he says, you know, I've noticed something. I've noticed that all your songs are about rain. Why are you always singing about water? What's up with that? That's weird. And the village leader looks back at him, and he says, because rain is our life. Without rain, we don't live. That's why we sing about rain all the time. And the Hopi villager, village leader, just like that, looks back at this anthropologist, and he goes, why are all your songs about romance? We do not 
just like romance and sex in our culture. We don't just have an appreciation or fondness for it. We have in so many ways exchanged the glory of the immortal God for to, <clears throat> who made us to image him. We've exchanged God, the glory of God, for the glory of sex and romance. And it doesn't work. It's never enough. And I'll tell you where you see that romance makes a terrible God. You see it in all the backlash in our culture. You see it in very high divorce rates, where people entered into a marriage with just some impossible expectations of how their spouse was going to complete them. And then they were disappointed. And so it's, it's irreconcilable. We can't make it work. You see it in the way that people in our culture are trying to redefine what counts as marriage. You, you see it in the increase of open sexual marriages. Because we were supposed to satisfy each other, but we don't perfectly. So what if we bring some other people in? Maybe that'll fix it. And, it, and it's broken. And it, and it isn't just out there. It's broken in here. Every one of us in this room is broken. That's why so many married ladies in the room, you find yourself daydreaming about, what, it, what if I had a husband who was just a little bit more romantic? He just engaged a little more. Then, man, that would be the dream. Then life would be complete. That's why some of us married guys in the room, you find yourself thinking, why can't you just look a little bit more like her? Every day, people play out emotional fantasies, imagining how much easier life would be with some other partner. It's a worship issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's a God issue. And nothing else we talk about in this series is going to make sense until we understand what's going on at the root of all this. And what's going on at the root of all this is we have exchanged the Creator God, the, the loving, personal, artistic, creative God who made us to image Him. We've exchanged it for the belief that better sex or better romance will ultimately satisfy what is lacking in us, all of us at some level, in some degree, have done this. So, the only question left is, what does that God do with us? What does the beautiful, holy, artistic, creator God do with his creation that has traded him in, rejected him, exchanged him to instead believe that we were made for things that we, he made and not actually for him? How does he respond to us? In two ways. One, God's son Jesus comes to earth. Colossians 1 says that Jesus came to earth as the image of the invisible God. So Jesus comes to earth revealing and perfectly imaging God, the way that we were all designed to. And the way that Jesus, the son of God, the way that he interacts with sex and romance, it ought to astound us because he doesn't partake at all. He lives his entire life as a non-married single man. And he expresses no bitterness, no resentment, no desire to redefine marriage or sex or romance or gender. He's not unfulfilled. He's not alone. He's not unsatisfied. Doesn't partake at all. But not only does Jesus model for us that romance and sex will never actually answer the deepest longings of the human heart, Not only does he model that perfectly with his sinless single life, but he he goes one step further. And in the same way that we had made an exchange, Jesus made an exchange for us. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, it says, He made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, we exchange something. 
We traded in God. And what we got in return was sin and death and incomplete longing that will never be satisfied by anything here on planet Earth. And Jesus came to Earth and he walked perfectly and he made his, an exchange of his own. Or he traded in himself for created beings like us. Jesus came and he died so that we could be made right with God. So that we could be covered by his perfect image. So that broken image bearers like us, all of us, could be made whole and we could be restored. The God of the universe loved you so much that he was not willing to spare his son to come and get you, to forgive you of all your sexual sin, to heal you of all your sexual brokenness, to promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. And I think that changes our perspective. And thro- throughout this series, I may say some things that go against culture. I probably will. That may at some point in the future become classified as maybe hate speech. I don't know. But I've already resigned, I've already resigned myself to the fact that I've preached sermons that may get me put in jail someday. I'm not joking. But far from hate, I love humanity. And I think that some of the beliefs that our culture has are hurting us. So this is not an us versus them thing. This is not picking on any sort of community or group. This is a series about all of us. I'm not singling any group out. All of us. I want to help us understand that his design for gender and sex and romance, they're connected to his beautiful sacrifice. And I want us to begin to question the world's narratives that sex is ultimate. Because if the biblical story does not control our thinking, we'll be swept into the story that the world tells about itself. And I don't look at culture and shake my fist at culture. No, I, have, I actually have a lot of compassion for culture. Because I see when God has been moved out of the picture and our society becomes more secular, where do you expect people to find their identity and their intimacy? Like, look, if God has been moved out of the picture, we still have yearnings for worship and for intimacy. And so, of course, of course, sex took the place of God in, in a secular culture. Of course. Because we're all worshipers. All human beings are worshipers. So we need to show so much grace here. Because people are never our enemy. Never. Our battles with the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So let's have a ton of grace for people. And let's allow the word of God to confront us first. Let's allow the word of God to overthrow any wrong patterns of thought and behavior. All right? Let's pray. Lord, Romans 12 says that in, a, in view of God's mercies, to offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So, Lord, we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. And we trust you with our minds, and we pray that we would not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but that we'd be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we know that only happens as you pour your love into our life. So come, Holy Spirit, give us grace, transform your people. We love you, and in in all the hard things and in the difficult passages and in the complexity of all this, We know that you have the words of life. So we ask for your wisdom, Lord. 
And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, the ministry team can come forward. If anybody liked prayer for any reason, they love to pray for you. If not, we have lunch over there. Have a great day.